This is Real Business in Real Time with executive coach, Dr. Mark Hinderleiter. Learn what C-suite execs and business leaders have learned in the real-time, real-world school of hard knocks. And now, here's your host, Dr. Mark Hinderleiter. Hi everyone, this is Mark Hinderleiter. Welcome to Real Business in Real Time. My guest today is Dr. Gary McGrath. Gary's a former Army officer, so we thank him for his service. Currently, Gary's an executive coach, keynote speaker, and a certified speaking professional with the National Speakers Association. Gary's a podcast host and CEO of a company called Staterius. We'll ask him what that means here in a minute. Uh, Their mission, their purpose, is making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Uh, Dr. Gary is the creator of the Leader Step 7 Leadership Development Program that includes selection, assessments, training, coaching, mentoring, and team building. Dr. McGrath is the author of two books, Mastering Sales Leadership, Learning to Herd Cats, great name by the way, and a CEO's journey. Gary's senior leadership experience, along with these academic credentials, make him a leader worth listening to. So, Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. Looking forward to talking to you and explaining what Staterius means. Well, why don't we just start there? <laughs> what what is what? Tell me about that name. Well, you know, when you look nowadays for the name of a of your company and you want something different, it's really hard to find a .dot com that somebody else hasn't used. Yeah. So I delved into Native American languages, I delved into Greek, and I delved into Latin. And I found this Latin word called staterius, which means to stand firm. And being a leadership consulting firm, uh, I kind of like that. And uh, since I had uh, six years of Catholic school growing up and a little bit of Latin in my background, it just felt right. So there you go. (laughs) You're the only person I know that has a company by that name. So it's good to be unique. Anyway, welcome. Thank you. You know, I noticed on your website and your LinkedIn page, you talk about this purpose, making good bosses into great leaders, which I love. But I'd like to kind of talk about the other side of the coin that doesn't get talked about very often, and that's bad bosses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I guess just first question, Gary, is in your experience and I've certainly experienced it too, and so have a lot of the listeners. What's the impact of bad bosses on people and culture inside a firm? In a word, devastating. Yeah. When I meet people and they ask me what I do, I ask them if they've ever had a bad boss, and most people say yes, and I say, well, I get rid of them. And our mission is to get rid of bad bosses by making them good bosses and hopefully then make them into good leaders if we can. If we can't, I'll do everything I can to get them in an individual contributor's role or get them out of that role because bad bosses can be downright devastating. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a multiplier. When you have a leader, a boss, a manager, a vice president, a president, owner, whoever that might be, their daily activities affect both the efficiency, the effectiveness, and the emotion every single moment, every single day. And I've had, I've had leaders who are so passionate about their work, their bad bosses that show frustration and anger because of their passion without really understanding the power of connection with humans emotionally. And I was talking to the CEO of a, a large business, about two or 3,000 people in the company, one of the largest construction companies in the country. And, and I, very, very 
caring man, but also at times because he had gone through some challenges in his in his leadership of this uh, organization where he was the owner and it almost went bankrupt a couple of times. So when things went south, he would get emotional. He would get angry when yeah. people made mistakes. So when I was coaching him one day and I was talking to him, I said, do you understand the negative impact that you can have because of the power that you hold in your hand as the owner, you hold this person, this human being's livelihood in your hand. So when you get angry and frustrated and they're thinking survival, fight, flight, or freeze, I need to get away from this because I'm going to get fired. And they know you have that power. And he stood there and he looked at me incredulously, Mark. And he said, but I'm not firing people for making mistakes. So I understand that, but they don't know that in the moment. They just feel that intense emotion. And not only that, but physiologically, you're creating stress that releases cortisol and that cortisol and that adrenaline and all those, those hormones that are released has been proven to shorten our lives. I said, you realize that if you do this over and over and over again, you're slowly killing your employees. And he literally, like I punched him in the chest, stepped back and said, I, I never looked at it that way. I never realized. And I said, I know that because you really do care about your people. I said, and the way you can care for them more is care for them, not just in their livelihood, but in their emotion, their psyche, every part of them. So you can show them compassionate accountability, hold them accountable without exploding. So they don't feel the lizard part of their brain going into overload and feel that threat, like they're going to get fired. And hurt them with all that adrenaline, that cortisol and everything. Be more responsible, be compassionately accountable. And, and that, that was years ago. And he has done that. He has shifted to the point where his leadership team have talked to me, where I've coached a lot of them and said, he doesn't blow up anymore. That's awesome. I don't know if your experience matches mine. When I've seen bad bosses, and I've seen a lot of them, there usually isn't malice in their heart. There's just unawareness uh most of the time there's a lot of reasons for it but of how they're impacting people how they're coming across with people is, is that kind of what you see well at the core of our leadership seven program is awareness that is one of the the uh, fundamental things that we focus on and as i always say we get rid of bad bosses and most bad bosses aren't bad bosses because they want to be a bad boss they're bad bosses because they don't know how to be a good boss and we teach the how. If you want to learn what to do, and a lot of these bosses that are challenged have read all kinds of leadership books. You talk to them. I've read this book. I've read this book. But they're not applying it. They're not learning how. And the best, fastest way to learn how is to get a coach who can honestly and credibly and trustingly talk with you and let you know the truth about the impacts that you're talking about if they're not aware of it. Help the person become more aware and work on that deeply with them so that they can show up as a good boss and then a great leader with time. Yeah. Would you dig into that a little bit more, Gary? What, what's that look like when you work with bad boss um, and at the other end of that engagement, they've really made some big improvements. So what's that process look like typically? 
Well, you know, I'm glad you asked that because that's what my second book is about, A CEO's Journey, The Seven Steps of Intentional Leadership. And I often ask people, if you want to develop leadership capabilities, leadership skills, leadership growth, where do you start? You know, where do you start? Yeah. And, uh, and I said, well, you start with step one. It, it, in my book, you start with step one. Step one is purpose. And the first component of purpose is a personal mission statement. Now, I learned this when I worked for the Covey Leadership Center back in the 90s, and I was trained in seven habits of highly effective people. And we wrote personal mission statements, and we worked with executives back then, and they still do that today, and it's great work. And I can remember in some of these um, ad hoc speeches I would do, I would do surveys and ask people to raise their hand. How many people here have a personal written mission statement? It's written, it's personal, and you keep it with you. And it was about 8 or 10% back then. Yeah. Today, it's less than 2%, less than 1% sometimes. One out of 100 people have a personal written mission statement that they use and help guide them. The mission statement becomes your anchor of authenticity, your reminder of accountability. So the first thing that we always do with leaders is ask them if they have a personal mission statement. And if they don't, that's the first thing we do when we're coaching them, help them write it. And writing that mission statement could take a week or it could take six months. It depends on the person. It depends on how deep they have to go. But it's a statement, not of what you want to do in your life, but how you want to live. How do you want to show up every day? And that's why I knew with the leader that I was working with who was getting frustrated and getting angry. And I said, I understand all of those things. I understand the fear that you're in that the company might go under again. I get that. But you don't get to abuse people because you're struggling with an emotional challenge. That is destructive. And by making him aware and then making him, first of all, accept the fact that he needed to improve, he understood that. Then almost the first thing people say to me is, well, how do I do that? How do I change? Let's use your compass, your daily compass with a mission statement to remind you. And I always like to say, Mark, that, uh, that mission, how important this mission statement is. Because you can have, we've all had bad days. Yep. Really bad days. Whether it's a bad day at work where everything went wrong. Uh, maybe, you know, for people that are in sales, every single customer they talked to said no or canceled the contract that they were going to sign. And mom or dad had to stay home for the day. So they're upset because they didn't get to go to work and you did. And it just seems like everything went wrong. And it starts to wear on you and wear on you and wear on you. At the end of the day, if you can look in the mirror and say to yourself, this has been a tough day and I lived my mission statement, I showed up as the best possible version of myself today. That's a great day. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what I like about what you're saying is we go in the right direction more often than not if we have a compass. Uh, right. And that's what that mission is. That mission. And if we don't, we get knocked off the path. We got knocked off the direction and we feel lost. You see, we, we don't have anything to get back on the path, to get back in the right direction. And we're always going off path a little bit off the direction because it's not a map. It's a compass. Yeah. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. It's, it's our compass that helps us stay in the set in the right direction. Okay. So you're working with this 
bad boss in transition. They've got a good mission statement. Mm -hmm. They've got a good compass, a rudder, a way to keep them going in the right direction. Now what? Well, there's two primary things that we look at and really become aware of. The first is as part of step one and purpose is mindset. And if they will write a personal mission statement and start living it, then they probably have a growth mindset. But if you've ever worked for a boss with a fixed mindset, and we use Carol Dweck's work on mindset and also the Arbinger's group on the outward mindset and understand what the definitions of these things mean. If you've ever worked for a fixed mindset boss, that's a bad boss. <laughs> they are tough to work for because the first, the very first thing they're going to do is protect themselves and blame everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're working for them and the second thing they're going to want is they're going to want you to agree with everything they say. They want a minion. They don't want you to think they just want you to execute what they want you to execute. So it's very demeaning again. So we look for a growth mindset and understand we are all mixed in our mindsets. Yeah. It's a matter of degree. How much can I move towards being growth in terms of being a lifelong learner that when I make mistakes, it's not a personal affront to me. It is a way for me to learn. There's one more thing I learned to not do. So, you know, the growth mindset is important. And the second thing is the first thing that we actually assess or measure is emotional intelligence. Yeah. Emotional intelligence is the only one of two scientifically measurable characteristics of leadership effectiveness. There's only two that we know of, emotional intelligence and cognitive judgment. The ability to make good judgment uh, day in and day out, but also under pressure, but also to do it with emotional intelligence and an emotional stability is necessary for a leader to be able to lead. Yeah. So what's your experience with the correlation, Gary, of low emotional intelligence and bad boss? How strong is that correlation? Uh, Very high. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Because so I like to use uh, Daniel Goleman's work on emotional intelligence, kind of the father of emotional intelligence. And he he's there's several models out there that people talk about. But the first aspect of it is self-awareness and knowing my own emotional state and self-management, being able to manage my emotions, social awareness, being able to view, understand, see, perceive the emotions of others or, or a group of people, an individual or group, and then relationship management to be able to take all of that in the moment and be able to, with self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, be able to apply a communication style with someone that is effective and understanding and compassionately accountable. It's a lot there. Okay. When you have low emotional intelligence, you're not able to do any of that very effectively. You don't pick up on the nuances when, when you ask somebody to do something and they get a look on their face. I was just talking to a leader yesterday and he said uh, he was having a meeting. It was a very important meeting with his, his leadership staff and his uh, vice president of operations during one of the comments that he made got a little smirk on his face. And it wasn't a time when that smirk was probably should have been there. Yeah. Right. So there was an incongruence with that. And I said, so what did you do? And he says, well, you know, uh, he might've been thinking this and he might've been thinking that he's smirking now and he's going through and I'm like, okay. And then what? And he says, well, no, I, you know, maybe I'll talk to him later. I'm like, okay. So I started coaching him around that. And I'm like, why are you wasting so much energy trying to figure out what he's thinking and what he's feeling? 
when he's somebody you work with and you can wait in his office is right next to yours. Go next door and ask him. So I was kind of interested on in why you were smirking at that moment. And, you know, for all I know, he'll say, you know, he'll talk about, you know, like I'll talk about my dog. I don't know. For some reason, what you just said reminded me of Bailey, my dog. And I started to smile. Had nothing to do with the meeting. Yeah. So, but emotional intelligence is being able to, in that moment, recognize that. And I asked him, why is it important to follow up with him as the CEO of the company? And he said, to make him aware that I noticed. I'm like, exactly. Just that you noticed. And if there's an incongruence and you recognize that incongruence in the moment, I've done this in coaching. I know you have, Mark, where somebody will do something that you weren't expecting to see in their face. And you go, what's that look? What what just happened there, right? Exactly. And they're like, what are you reading my mind? How do you know that? (laughs) People don't even know what their facial expressions are, but it reveals what's going on. Their eyes reveal. We need to listen with our eyes. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I learned, I learned that playing poker as a young man, right? (laughs) Look for tells. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, with IQ, Gary, I've, I've been reading recently, last couple of years is neuroplasticity uh, and the kind of the, the philosophy that IQ is not as fixed as what people used to think. Yep. Um, what's your take on EQ? Is, is that relatively fixed or can, uh, with good coaching, can people move the needle on their EQ? Oh, it's, it's not fixed at all. Okay. Um, and uh, it, it's, there are slight improvements that are starting to be able to uh, prove with IQ. But the other part of that is, is that there's, I just was looking up at some of the recent research because I stay up on neuroscience in the brain and the most recent stuff that they talk about are nine different types of intelligence. Yeah. Okay. So uh, IQ and EQ are just two of the nine and some of them are more easily adapted and others are not. But uh, EQ, so I, I will tell you, our, our nine-month leadership program, Leadership 7, which we've mentioned a few times, which includes all this stuff, it's very holistic and it's very, it's very intense. The average increase over the last five years of every single person that's been in our program, the average across the hundreds of people that have been through this, is nine points increase in emotional intelligence and in their emotion quotient between the beginning and the end of the program. And that's one of the things that we measure nine to 10 points. Um, I mean, think about it. If, if you're a 75 and you go to an 85 out of a hundred points, that's a significant increase in, in certain areas of awareness and uh, relationship management things. And I've seen some incredible increases. I had one guy that his, his went up 20 points. And I have to tell you, Mark, in 10 months, somebody's EQ going up 20 points. I was a little skeptical. Yeah. So in our mini, we have a boot camp in the beginning of three and a half days and a mini boot camp at the end is two days. And um, I called him out and uh, uh, sat down with him and I asked, started asking some questions. I said, I want to, I want to talk to you about the program and what you thought about it. And I was just kind of weaving my way into this. And I said, so what did you think about your, your uh, EQ jumping 20 points? And he said, well, I was, I was really surprised. I said, why is that? And he says, well, he says, I have to admit that the 10 months that we've been working together, I have focused every single month on that. Now I've done other things, but I've focused on my emotional intelligence 
on some aspect or strategy every single month and put a significant amount of time into that. And I said, and so what are you seeing from that? What's the result of it? And he's seeing the impact with his wife, with his children, with his friends and family at work. People see him differently when he sits and talks with them. He listens to hear rather than listening to respond. You know, he worked really hard for 10 months. Can you imagine if we could get leaders to do that, to work that hard for that many months on EQ? They definitely go up 10 to 15 points. That was that one was remarkable. At the end of it, I, I realized that he really did show, and I don't care about the points. I always tell people, I don't care about what your score is. Do the work and good things will happen. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm intrigued about your nine month program. So it sounds to me like there's some assessment work. Yeah. Uh, there's some training. Mm-hmm. There's some coaching. There's some application on the job. That yeah. I, there's some you used a term with me when you and I talked the other day. Job work. Job work. Yeah, Instead of homework, it's job work. Yeah. Uh, well, we can't call it work work. So <laughs> that's what we do every day. Homework. Instead of uh, uh yeah, because the, the challenge in all of this, and I, I uh, have a video on my website where I, I did two years of research on why leadership programs fail. And there's several really key things. And then, Mark, you've gotten to know me in the short period of time that uh, uh, I integrate things. And for example, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give one specific example of how we've integrated certain aspects of this program. And uh, it basically comes down to peer pressure. Why do Weight Watchers... And other programs like that work. It works because of peer pressure. Because what they found is they did this research and they found that someone with a a life-threatening event, a heart attack, a diabetic coma, a stroke, will go back to their old way of living, their health, within six to eight weeks after the event if they don't have one thing. And it doesn't matter what the doctor does. It doesn't matter what the family does, but they need one thing and one thing only. And that's to attend meetings with a support group that are going through the same thing. That's why Weight Watchers works. That's why AA works. Yeah. Okay. Because they've all experienced it. They're going through it together. 85% of the people that don't do it go back to their old ways. 85% of the people that do do it stay on their program and get healthier. So the other part of this is you have to have this job work or you have to have application within the context of the mission, the values, and the culture of the organization that these people are in. So you can't go to a a one-week program with uh, American Management Association. They're great programs to kind of hone your skills in certain areas, but it's not going to make a cultural difference. Our program immerses a group of people, uh, you know, 12 to 18 people into the organization, you know, a cross-sectional part of the organization. You can run multiple programs at the same time, but they start to support each other. And then they have teams within that. Like if it's 16 people, we have four teams of four. And these cohorts meet regularly at least once a month. And a lot of times we find out they meet multiple times during the month (laughs) and they support each other. They help each other. They remind each other of the work that's supposed to be doing on the job. Are you coaching anybody? Are you using your emotional intelligence strategy of self-awareness? How are you feeling right now? You know, they'll ask them. They'll hold them accountable to it because it's peer pressure. 
And oh, by the way, Mark, uh, we measure everything, not just the EQ, but we do things to measure activity level and um, commitment as they go through. Like, for instance, if they meet as a cohort, they earn 25 points once the meeting minutes. So they have to run a meeting. They have to fill out minutes and they have to send it into my assistant. It gets it gets uh, documented and it gives them 25 points into the end game. In the end game, after nine or 10 months, is we give a prize to the cohort that achieved the most number of points to all of the activities that we had in the nine or 10 months. So there's ways of measuring this. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's a lot more complex than that, but um, they have professional coaches, statarians, or I call them, my associates are called statarians. And uh, they have a coach assigned to them for the 10 months. And they get 10, 11, 12 coaching sessions uh, at least once a month. Uh, and then we also have a coaching session with their boss so that we can talk to them about their leadership development. What, uh, what, what should they be working on? What are they good at? And, uh, and then we come to an agreement on the things that they're going to work on and improve over the eight to nine months. And then uh, have an, another three-way conversation with the boss at the end to present their individual leadership we prepare so there's a lot of pieces to the yeah. program and it's this holistic approach that i've found that makes the difference it's not one part it's not just coaching it's not just training it's not just a few assessments it's the whole thing and it's the whole thing with a team of people going through it together yeah that, that makes so much sense to me because i've I've done it the old-fashioned way of doing events, leadership seminars that I thought were very good and got great feedback. But I learned it didn't move the needle on yeah. people's skills and behaviors. So, you know, you said something to me on the phone the other day that stuck with me, that leadership's a contact sport, right? And leadership's uh, a contact sport. Yeah. yeah. So my my corollary to that is that leadership development is a team sport. Um, yes. And that's certainly how you're organizing your, your program with the cohorts and engaging the, you know, the direct manager, the boss, so that there's just collaboration and accountability and, and all those kind of things that, that end up helping move the needle. Yeah. And there's two, two principles that we use through the entire program. Principle number one, trust the process. Yeah. All right. Forget about the outcome. Don't worry about the competition or the, the numbers or the points. Do the work and good things will happen. Yeah. And we'll guide you and help you along the way, but trust the process. Our agenda for our three and a half day boot camp can be written on one page. It's a list of topics. This is what we're going to do from day one, day two, day three. And for some people that really want to know minute by minute what's going to happen, that's a challenge for them. And we just tell them, you need to trust me, trust the process. We know what we're doing. You're in good hands. Nobody's going to get hurt. Okay. <laughs> Trust the process. The second principle, leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Yeah. Positional leadership, positional power is fleeting. It only lasts for as long as you hold on to that position or people will recognize the power that you have. But personal power is enduring. When people trust a leader, and trust them personally, they will do anything to help achieve the goal. So what we teach is leadership is a responsibility, not a position. 
when you have the position, your responsibility to the people is greater. But it's still a responsibility that is held in your person, not in your position. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that just so resonates with my own experience too. you know, 35 years in the corporate world before I kind of embarked on leadership development, executive coaching, the best bosses I ever worked with were authentic, mm. right? Uh, integrity, self-aware, uh, you know, cared about uh, people's development, um, cared about their development. And, you know, like you said, had that growth mindset versus know-it-all, it's all about me, I'm the boss, you know. I had a, my first corporate job, Gary, uh, it was a fairly good-sized company, um, and the CEO was uh, the 100% shareholder. He owned this company, right? And the, the urban legend was somebody asked him about the organizational chart, and he said, well, I'll tell you what it is. There's me and everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you know, yeah. I guess if you own the company, maybe – Maybe people will tolerate that, but not today's workforce. They want better bosses. No, yeah. they, they want career paths uh, and they want a purpose is, is kind of the research that I see. Uh, they want to work for a company that has a purpose that they resonate to. So all the things that you're saying are just really resonating. Yeah. Yeah. It's a uh, great, great points. Um, so uh, just a, another model that I love to use is uh, from Daniel Goleman in his book, uh, Social Intelligence. And he talks about uh, what I call the three dark nights yeah. and, uh, of leadership, the bad boss, the narcissist, the Machiavellian, and the sociopath. <laughs> and what I've seen in bad bosses is they're usually a combination of two of those things. Yeah. And if uh, people you know, look it up, look on the Internet, you can find it in his book. It's great descriptions of those three. And I can almost guarantee you that every single listener that you have, Mark, and hears this, can categorize the bad bosses they've had as a narcissist, a Machiavellian, or a sociopath. And when I meet those, when I interview CEOs to work with them, if I assess that they're in any one of those categories, won't recognize it, I walk away. I will not work with them. If that's a lose-lose, right? Your, your, guy, your guy that says, I'll tell you the organizational chart, there's me and then there's everybody else. Nope, I would never work with them. Yeah, and, and there is nothing that you and I can do in our collective 67 years experience to move the needle with somebody like that. Never. Right? For sure. Yeah. It's like the light bulb, right? How many psychologists it take to change the light bulb? One, but the light bulb needs to want to change. Okay. <laughs> it's an old joke, but it's a beautiful one. You know, yeah. if, it, yeah. if our coachee doesn't want to change, adjust, improve, and really have that growth mindset, forget it. Yeah. Yeah. Coachability has to be there for sure. Yep. So switching gears, Gary, the last question I ask folks, what's the greatest lesson? So you, you hold a PhD, but you're a graduate of the School of Hard Knocks just because you've been doing this for a long time. Mm. What's, what's, the, what's the lesson you want to share with the listeners that has a, had a big impact on you? Well, so I, I can only speak for what I've learned in this long history for myself is, you know, I, I was an Army officer I was in command at 25 years old. I was a mechanical and metallurgical engineer. I went to manufacturing. It was pretty successful. Started a business, did all these things. And I, I have to tell you, Mark, if there was one thing I could have done a lot better, it would have been 
to build more relationships, yeah. to build stronger relationships. I, I have, uh, I had a challenge in doing that because I uh, grew up in a military family, moved every single, every two years, my entire education from the time I was in kindergarten to graduating high school, I was in a different school every two years. So I would, I made great quick friends but I have no childhood friends. Okay. Now I, I will say that one of my best friends, I always talk about Tom Cross is former Marine. And I just got to reconnect with Tom. We used to hang around together for years and years uh, when we were kids. And just in the last year, I got to reconnect with him and see how he's doing. And it just feels good to have somebody in your life. You've known that long, you know? Yeah. And, um, if I could tell myself in business, if I could tell myself, you know, go back, I would say, you need to build more relationships. You need to build stronger relationships. And my last 20 years, I've spent a lot more time. When I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, I made it a personal commitment to start building friendships and relationships here and uh, have done a much better job in this. What I hope is the final move I'll make. I've been here almost 20 years now, so hopefully I'm not going to move again. And, um, have some great, great friends and relationships. And my best client is Baker Roofing Company. I've worked with them for 12 years now. And Prentice Baker is uh, is the, the chairman, the owner. Mark Lee is the president. They're friends. And I can't tell you all the things that those friends have done for me in my business, but also in understanding my personal life. And without that, we got nothing. That's a fact. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great, great lesson. I, I really appreciate that. I would, I would tell you, I learned that lesson later than I probably should have to. Yeah. So yeah. Well, Gary, thank you so much for your time. Last thing I just want to ask is contact information. Listeners want to get a hold of you. Staterius.com, man. What's, what's the problem? I mean, uh, everybody knows Latin, right? S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S.com, Staterius. And my email address is Gary at Staterius.com. And I'm sure that I'll get a copy of this podcast from Sean, our co-producer, and uh, load it up through you on all of our websites and everything. So uh, people will be able to contact me through you or through me. They can always get a hold of you and get me. So Yeah, for sure. And I know you're on LinkedIn also. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Dr. Gary McGrath, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I know we could go another hour. Uh, So, folks, thanks for listening. So my last line is always this, Gary. Great podcasts are the new MBA. So thank you all for listening. Thanks for joining us on Real Business in Real Time with executive coach Dr. Mark Hinderleiter. Be sure to connect with Mark Hinderleiter on LinkedIn, check out his leadership tip of the week, and subscribe to this podcast on the app of your choice. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.